Hello, people of the world. Welcome to the Beer Flight Podcast, a sampling of drinking while traveling, presented by your personal drinking guides at Roundtree Brewing Company. Our goal on Beer Flight is to impart some knowledge, advice, and entertainment from our experiences drinking abroad and meeting different people and cultures. On today's episode, we are venturing into the tour de force that is Belgium. I am Billy Rudolph, your host, and I'll be joined by owner and head brewer of Roundtree Brewing Company, Craig Mykoski, as well as our guest, Nick Hoffman. Nick is a dual citizen in the US and Belgium, as well as a doctor of medical history and an avid beer enthusiast. To set up the interview, we want to give some background on what many people called Europe's beer capital. Belgium boasts a very rich brewing tradition, producing more than 400 beer styles and over 300 breweries in the geographic area roughly the size of Maryland. There are six official Trappist breweries that still make and sell beer within Belgium, and there are more throughout the world. But you also get AB InVev, which is the world's largest industry giant based in Leuven. They make Stella, Hogarden, Leffe, Bex, they own Budweiser, Corona, Modelo, Jupiler, and so many more. In the different regions you have in Belgium, in Flanders you'll get more sours and wheat and beer that is meant to taste a little bit off. Bajottenland is home of the Lambics and Goose styles and made with spontaneous fermentation. Wallonia is where you'll drink the Saison, which come from more modest origins from the countryside. And without further ado, let's get to the interview. Well, we'd like to welcome to the podcast, Nick Hoffman. Uh, History right professor and beer connoisseur. Yeah. Nick, tell us about yourself. What a wonderful uh, segue. Hi, I'm Nick Hoffman, a doctor of medical history, um, beer guy. So are you, wait, let's back up, stop right there. So are you a real doctor then? I have a P, no, I have a PhD in medical history um, and fake doctor. Fake doctor, yeah. history doctor, history doctor, you know, outbreaks, civil war, that kind of stuff. Don't like anyone. It leads to death. <laughs> yeah. Beer is medicine. Alcohol is medicine. Okay. That's wonderful. Well, yeah. we brought you all uh, on the podcast today. We want to talk to you about Belgian beers, um, to which you have some experience. Never had them. Go ahead. Sorry. Just noting for the record, he's being sarcastic. I'm Belgian. I'm, <laughs> I'm a Belgian dual citizen. Well, let's start with, um, so... Been to Belgium many times. Yep. Uh, Billy, Billy knows a little bit more uh, of your background than I do, but you know we, we've all gone to some really cool places. I know I have Billy. We, we've talked about it, but uh, favorite place in Belgium uh, to go have a drink. And, and was there was there a specific experience or, or person that made it so memorable, or is it just uh, an ambient thing, or, or what is it? Is the beer spectacular? Tell us. Well, we will get. I know a little bit into Belgian beer, but you guys know it's kind of weird uh, in that generally restaurants are kind of based around the beer that they sell. And if you go out to Belgium, the sign outside advertises the beer. So it's more of Belgium being a beer city. Um, I have family in Bruges, which is gorgeous. Well, it's a lovely city. The best city you could go for beer, kind of. Uh, Or we could pronounce it like the Dutch, which would be Bruges, which is awful. Gosh, that hurts. (laughs) That's terrible. So, well, I mean, by the time you're drunk enough to be wandering through the Grand Place and eating French fries from a stand, um, you've hit that kind of zone. Uh, but yeah, my, my uncle Francis and my aunt, uh, who lived there for a long time before he passed away, uh, he was the beer guy. Like he introduced me to Arval and that kind of stuff as the after dinner drink that it kind of sort of is. Right. But I have cousins who are a few years older than me who would take me on the town. And so, I mean, I couldn't even tell you a place every Every beer hall has its own special beers and you kind of wander and you drink as much as you can, um, which is an American turns out to be not nearly enough. Uh, they, they they were born in the culture. It's like trying to you know get a every ride, every single ride at Six Flags when they're busy. Like you can't do it. Yeah, There's exactly just too right. much experience in Bruges and another place. There was a place I found uh, they called the beer closet, translate from the Dutch. But you would get a thing that looked like a flower planter that was as wide as a beer bottle and a meter long. And you could get a meter of beer. 
and it cost a battery. One meter. And you could get as much beer as you could fit. Like whatever bottles would fit, whatever from this wall. It was just one meter of beer. And it was like 25 euros or something. You got like 10 bottles of beer. Like it was something. I don't remember much of what happened after that. <laughs> you just remember like the first two beers were really good and everything else just blurs together. That's right. It's like uh, the Blind Monk in Asheville where it wasn't that big of a place, but it's floor to ceiling bookshelves yeah, exactly. and it's one bottle thick. And you're just like, well, I guess I'm doing this. That's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty. 25 euros. That, that's the story. <laughs> so I get in talking about that as far as grabbing beers off the shelf. And what I have noticed uh, with a lot of Belgian beer bottles is it's kind of like going into a wine shop and buying wine. A lot of times I do buy off of that. That's a pretty looking label. It must be a good beer because there's some, there's they, some they, cool they know something about, do. you know, marketing yeah. that they, they yeah. must make good beer. Too. Although I guess ironically, the one that everyone wants Westy. Uh, is yeah. Right. No, is no label. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Which makes it, uh, even more intriguing. They have no label. Mm-hmm. What is this? I need to know more. Like, tell me about this new label beer. What's in this bottle? That's right. All all it has is a different colored cap based on its strength um, and a a seductively sloped bottle, Mm -hmm. uh, which is the closest the monk get to (laughs) it. There you go, Billy. Staring you down to get the lock out of you. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Catholic sex jokes are always tricky, (laughs) but you're there. So so your favorite beer experience is buying buying beer by the beer long fast. Well, it's just that I mean, as we can put it, like that, that, that was the college me first getting to buy stuff. But like you go to a, um, you know, place to get mussels, it's the North Sea, you get fresh seafood. I go by style almost. It'd be like well, what would pair well with, you know, exactly the mussels. I mean, it's, are- it's the same way that if, you know, people who like wine know you get white wine with seafood. Well, what are your beer to guard? What are your, your trappists? What, what, what do you yeah. feel like? Because I, I, there's no way you can know all the beers. There, there's something like, like 40 breweries within walking distance of Brooke's downtown. So you're not going to even try all of them there. <laughs> so what do you do? You say, well, I want something that would go well with the, the muscles. And you get something kind of fruity, kind of light. And I've had 30 different beers, 40 different beers. You, you'll never get the same one twice. And you go and get Chimay Blue. It's a waste of time because you can get it back here. And now you mm-hmm. can get it relatively fresh. So the point is you get a beer to guard because they don't ship well. You try something new. And Americans just don't have that same style because beer de garde is made with wild yeast. The yeast in Belgium is different than the yeast here. It's a very different thing here. So, it, you know, again, it's like if you're going to Napa, get a Napa wine. Don't get the imported crap. Get something fresh. It's always about what the French call ter- terroir, which is get the beer of the soil. You eat what's there. You drink what's there. You get the best. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of people make the mistake when they they travel. Well, when they travel abroad, but especially if they're going to, to Brussels or anywhere in Belgium. And they say, they walk up to the bartender and they say, give me a beer. And you're going to get like the most generic yeah. draft beer when you look behind and there's probably shelves of bottles of beer because they tend to drink a lot of beer out of the bottle. Yeah. And, you know, it's just certainly one of those places you just don't go ask for a beer. You want to kind of get something that is a little more interesting and go a little bit out of your comfort zone. Well, and know that not everyone in Belgium is a beer person and they have their standard. I mean, we have now that InBev, of course, owns the planet. Um, they have Stella here, but, you know, Stella, Moss, Jupiler, um, they're the ones that are everywhere. That's what people drink. You can get Moss from a, you can get Moss from a vending machine if you really wanted to. But the idea of that is that you have a nice drink after dinner or before dinner, an aperitif or a cocktail kind of thing, because when you're drinking Orval, or something, you're drinking like an 11% beer and that should be enjoyed. It shouldn't be polished up, right? Right, that's going to be your beer for, that's for the evening or for a while, yeah. Yeah. I, I do think it's funny how you said that not not every person in Belgium is a beer person, right? Yeah. You know? But it, I was amazed, and I'll go a little bit into uh, one of my drinking stories there, but I actually stayed um, uh, with somebody uh, in Popery. So when I was uh, touring going over to West Blatter and stayed with a, um, a family there and they weren't beer people, but it's amazing that even for people that weren't beer people, they actually had proper glassware and they washed my glass before they served me a beer because yeah. the, the culture over there is uh, people just, I don't know. It's kind of ingrained in culture there. Even if you're not a specifically a beer person, that people still have some understanding about how to serve beer. 
Yeah, totally. They're going to know how to treat their guests properly. Yeah. So my favorite, uh, so it, the, I can't even pronounce how you pronounce I say Bruges. How do you say? That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> uh, Bruges is perfectly fine. Yeah. So uh, my favorite beer city uh, that I've had a really cool experience, actually a couple of cool experiences at is uh, Antwerp. Um, so uh, not it's not an extremely touristy town. It's actually uh, more on like diamond business there. It's actually an a interesting fact about Antwerp. It, it held the second Olympics. Um but uh, there's this bar there called the Culminator Bar. And it's actually, uh, again, Antwerp's not a very touristy place. So it's really hard to find. It's kind of on a, on a back road, not in a touristy section of town. Uh, and I think both times that I went, I walked past it about three or four times before I actually <laughs> found it. Um, so, but it's this bar where they, they don't necessarily have the most extensive beer menu. And that, that would probably go to Delirium Bar in, in Brussels. But what they have is the most interesting uh, uh, vintage beer menu that I've ever seen. I don't think anybody uh, has as good of a one as they have. Uh, we are likely to have some some good ones here in Atlanta with uh, Porter Bar and uh, Brickstore. But uh, they, you can go in there and you can get a, um, a Orval. You can get Orval from this year or you can get an Orval from 1985. And there's there's this couple there that own it, and they basically sat on um, on stashes of beer from from certain breweries uh, for the last 25 years. Then they just decided to open a bar, <laughs> which yeah. that's the story that I got at least. And they're still there. They, they is unless you know it's, it's been a while, so I think they're still there, <laughs> still so. living. Um, but it, it was them, and they had their cats in there that run around and classical music playing. And so it's one of the, the most amazing beer experience that i ever had just because it was so unique and different than anything that you'd experience over here and since it's not in a touristy place it, uh, the two times that i went it was never crowded either it was, it was very relaxed and it was almost like i was drinking in uh in uh, a couple's living room well and something you t- you touched on a couple of things that really illustrate the european beer scene in particular first of all i love me some taco mac i've been here forever but like the idea that you'd have 700 beers on the menu is completely absurd. It means that A, they're not fresh or well taken care of, or B, like if you have a beer on the keg, you have to clean those lines. <laughs> and so like by the time you've cleaned all 700 taps, something's gone bad again. And so, yeah, you're not going to find a beer menu that's nine pages long. You're going to have a handful of bottles, a handful of tap beers, and that's it. And that's what makes it good. And second, the idea of aging beer. We don't need freshness meters on beers above a certain gravity. Some do really improve with pay. Some do need to be consumed fresh. Don't, yes, <laughs> don't keep that novelty bottle forever. Uh, and when you do, you want to keep it cold and you want to keep it dark and you don't want to keep expose it to light. But that's fantastic. I do. I have a beer cellar. I'm sure you do, too. And it's, it's nice to keep a few beers around that will mature with flavor. And Belgian beers do that because the yeast tends to keep alive. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I will say, though, that we, so we had some really cool vintage stuff and and uh every now and then not all of them uh, turn out good <laughs> no. after 20 years and i see stuff that i've been aging for a long time now, now correct me if i'm wrong but like the whole beer aging is still relatively like a new concept well, it's, for it's it's uh, kind of experimental right it's yeah. it's not it, it, the interesting part about aging uh aging beer is is you can age something and it'll come out really awesome when you do open it but it's not it's not like uh, if you age something for a long time, it's going to come out better because you age it longer. And this kind of goes to wine, too. People always think, well, if you have a really old wine, it must be good. Actually, what you try to get is the vintage that was the best growing season, not necessarily just old. I mean, some age on some wines may may help uh, some tannins uh, uh, mellow out, but you're not necessarily just wanting an old, old wine. Same thing with same thing with beer. The, the cool thing about when I had all those different vintages of Orval is when they they actually changed brew houses one year and they changed techniques and that actually that showed up in the final product. It wasn't necessarily that wow I can get an Orval from ten years ago and compare it to today. I can look back and I can see 
okay, seven years ago, they actually changed the brewing process and you can taste that in the final product. That's right. And it's the same thing when you get like a 10 year scotch. If you keep it in your pantry for five years, it doesn't make it a 15 year scotch. <laughs> right. It's, it wasn't aging yeah. in the barrel at that point. Right. It was aging in the bottle. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that both of our stories, stories share is pub culture. Like in the 1960s, 70s, the U.S. had bars. And then, you know, we had the gentrification and the family movement where we, we don't really have the same kind of bars anymore. We have family restaurants and sports bars. And that's the place where you get greasy wings and hot. And trust me, I'm there way too often, as you can tell. But like there they have like, these are the beers we have. This is the food we serve. It, it's, it's a regular thing. It's a place where you go after work. And pub culture is different and it's lovely. And it's something that I kind of miss when I lived downtown. There was a couple. We I used to go to the Independent a lot. Yeah, there, there's a few that I go to that still yeah. kind of, at least here in, in, in town, that kind of exemplify that pop culture. But most of the time it's like, you know, I think what's lost on a lot of uh, Europeans when they say, when, when they come to America is they walk into a bar and like, look at all these TVs, you have all these sports on and like this, you might not get that in a lot of bars um, or pubs no. in, in a lot of places, especially in Belgium. Yeah. And it doesn't doesn't help that Atlanta is a transplant town where everyone wants to watch their hometown sports. But like if you're in Bruges, you're watching Bruges soccer team or in Liverpool or wherever you go, there's maybe one bar for outsiders, but you know, it's kind of a local community and you feel that sense of community very strongly. A lot of times the outside of bars is going to be that American style sports pub. Yeah, that's true. When that's you walk true. in, you're like, Oh, this is somewhat familiar. And I don't know if I feel comfortable here. They bet you they serve <laughs> butt heavy here. Yeah, and you just like back out of the bar. <laughs> So Billy, you have a, a cool place that you've been to that, that stuck out? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been to Brussels a couple of times and, you know, I, I always tell people like you can go and take your photo at Grandpa's and, you know, have a beverage at Delirium, see the mannequin piss. Yeah, like you can do that. It, actually, walking around and seeing the um, the the 1010 art and everything, all the cartoons is really cool. But no, actually going to Bruges, uh, we went to we found a place which is extremely hard to find called Nagar, uh, which I guess is a train station, but also a narrow outlet between buildings. And that is the key to knowing how to find this place. And so you, you, if you are able to find it in Bruges, um, you walk in and they have a menu that is, you know, puts the brick or uh, brick, brick store uh, Bible, your Bible to shame a little bit. They have a nice selection. Um, no need to look at it. They have this in-house triple that is all you really need to order. Um, I think we had three of those and they were like 14% alcohol and some of the best beer you're ever going to have. And you'll probably be hallucinating at the end. Um, but that was, that was in the middle of a day that like it was raining and it was cold. We were miserable. We were trying to navigate around Bruges and we found this place and they, they served the beer in their own, uh, glasses or like house glasses with cheese. And for my friend and I like floating on top to have to have a plate of cheese <laughs> served with beer. And that was all we were going to eat. Yeah. It was just like the perfect little touch. And so uh, the listeners can't see it, but uh, we actually have some cheese on the table here yes. so we can enjoy with our beer, which is also probably a nice segue into what are we going to be drinking? We each brought a beer to uh, share at the table. So I think we are each going to introduce what we brought and uh, and then uh, share it. And then everybody's going to kind of uh, tell us what they think. Yeah, mine should go last. Mine's heavy. Okay. Well, I'll go first when I open it. So I actually have three um, three bottles. <laughs> There's uh, Foley effect. There's some good Foley work here. The opening, you hear clattering. That's good. We're, we're, these are not sound effects. These are just the sounds. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we we have three beers here um one of them which I, i'm just pouring now is from petrus it's so it's a sour beer but it's a it's an aged uh pale ale mixed with um like a i guess brown uh ale according to their website um but actually i don't know if i've ever had a blended beer it, has blended. Like, it definitely has it has that um I'm just like wood age, like almost, almost like a rodent bot. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. A little sweeter, though. Almost get a little uh, uh, candy sugar nose. Yeah, a little less, raisiny. Less fruit on the back end, too. 
I would guess that the brown ale that they added to it was not as sour because it feels muted. It feels a little roasty. Yeah. So for those of you who don't understand pretentious beer drinking, <laughs> uh, first of all, you want some head on top of your beer. If someone is pouring you a beer so delicately that there's no head, the beer is either dead or all that carbonation is still inside the beer. You want the beer to release a little bit of the smell. So if there's no head, we roll it around the glass a little bit. You tap it because that releases the smell. If you're not smelling when you're drinking, it's wrong. Second, it's a sour, like you mentioned. There's two ways to get sour. Essentially, you kettle sour it where you ferment it with some souring a bacterium, right? Um, and that stays in the woods. So generally, these Belgian breweries use the same souring barrels time and time again. Um, this is why this is blended. You have to get the exact same flavor over and over again. Other people just add chemical. You can literally add citric acid, mm -hmm. uh, which is a way to kind of speed up the process. Citric, acetic, or lactic. You can, yeah, you can add. Um, and that's generally done more when you have fruit added mm -hmm. uh, because it's less predictable. Um, this is done the old Belgian way. This is a Belgian brune, right? Sour brew, Flanders brune. Very good. Yeah. And when you're looking for a sour, what do you look for? Um, you know, I, I used to not like sours that much. And usually, and, I, and before uh, we actually started the podcast, I was talking with Billy. When I first got into craft beer, um, you know, there, there wasn't a lot around. You know, I, I got into it 15 years ago. And most of what I could find that was interesting was was the Belgian stuff. Yeah. And so I kind of started getting into the, the quads and some of the, the sweeter styles. And then I think I faded away from really big beers, which in my mind, most Belgian beer was really big, sweet beer. So now what I what I normally go for now is uh, is uh, some of the sour stuff. And, and I mean, like Cantillon so interesting. And it's almost when I first had it, I thought it tastes like pickle juice. Okay. And now it's, it's it, and I and I think just taste develop and. And after you, after you have enough sour beers and, and know kind of what you're picking out. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't really know what I buy because it's not something that I buy very often. I'm, I'm so much more on the German, German side of what I make and brew. So, or, so I'm usually buying stuff that I'm a little more familiar with. So for me, when I go into drinking some of this, it, it's almost a little less work on my part, I guess, because I analyze it in a completely different mindset than when I analyze something that I'm brewing. So these, what, we're, what we're drinking, what's on the table is super interesting to me just because it goes out of my normal wheelhouse. Well, that was that's my intention too, to get yeah. something that I would never normally order. Well, no, so that's, that's kind of interesting because I had the same thought. I was like, I wonder what we're going to talk about because I remember when first getting on like outside of like just drinking, but like learning beer, St. Bernard de Savvy 12 was the gold standard. Because you could get it in the right bars, right. a brick store and yeah. the independent. So why, it was the first one that I'd ever heard of that yeah. you know, had Belgian in any type of name. And you could find like Chimay Blue, but it wasn't very treated very well in like its shipping. So half the time you got it, it was flat and garbage. And sometimes it was still good. But now it's all about subtlety for me. Like the good right. Bel I mean, and Germans is a great example of that because, you know, the difference yeah. between a Pilsner is impossible, right? Because mm -hmm. it's so subtle. And here, when you're getting these fresh, you notice all these little... Subtle sweetness. It's like you can tell whether they're using real like cane sugar or real like, you know, like these little subtle sweetnesses that make it work. This Petrus is is excellent. Um, my first one, I remember when the Duchess, Duchess de Bourgogne first came to the States. Oh, yeah. Well, it was impossible to find. It was like trying to get that golden bottle. And it was like a 12 ounce bottle would go for 20 bucks. For me, that was when Yingling finally came to Georgia. Oh, God help you. <laughs> that was when we were in college and we was like, no, we can get it. It's, it's, yeah. it's gold. You win. That's, that's it. <laughs> they, they were bringing it across St. Lines and bootlegging. They were. For twice as much. Five Points Bottle Shop was like, that's our one case. Someone's going to have to buy it. That's funny. Yeah, no, I remember those. I, I remember the days. Yeah. Well, you want, uh, I'm your next because I have a lighter beer. Do you have that? Yeah. So, um, I actually not bring a, uh, a Belgian beer um i actually brought a uh a round trip beer that's uh, being made on the pilot system right now in my garage still until we have everything fully operational but it is <laughs> yeah um so what it is it's a I'm, I'm calling it a white goza um so uh it's a blend of a belgian wit and uh in a in a goza so german style um so both are actually light 
um, wider styles for each region. Um, but what's interesting is each one at, at some point in, in its uh, uh, life, lifetime almost kind of went extinct. Um, the, the Belgian wet before it was, it was revitalized by Pierre Stelz, um, in Hoe Garden almost, uh, went extinct before he brought it back. And, and the Gozo basically went extinct because of, uh, German light lager hells and Pilsner and, and, uh, was overtaken. And now, now that American craft beer has basically brought each one of them back. Um, so pretty, pretty interesting. So this, this is actually a blend of. The two styles. I was actually really fortunate to to uh, work at Sells Brewing Company in Austin. Uh, so under this under the same name as the guy that revitalized it back in back in Hogarden, I got to learn a lot about how to make a Belgian wet. And then Goza, I actually haven't made too much Goza. I, I'm, I like them a lot, and I'm pretty interested in them. This is kind of my first uh, run into into one of them. So let's see. Uh, the debut. Here think, it is. Uh, my my worry is that when I open this browser, it's gonna. Let <laughs> <laughs> me do it over here. Put yeah, put it put it on something that it's gonna spray all over, and I'm gonna <laughs> on your puzzle. Yeah. Now, Nick, have you We're had any uh, round trip? I'm gonna, I'm gonna have our assistant open that over the sink really fast. But uh, we all, we all, I'm assuming everybody's had Hoe Garden, so we're oh, pretty familiar with the white. Yeah. Oh, I should have um, I should have uh, bought some uh, oranges for this. Uh, yeah. So, so this this was made. This beer was made with uh, blood orange peel, freshly freshly peeled blood orange peel, uh, coriander, and uh, kosher sea salt. Yeah. There's only one type of salt in my world. Kosher. Kosher. Yeah. 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 Not none of that Gentile salt yeah. for you. Comes in. And it's light. Three three point eight percent. All right. So nice, uh, nice fluffy white head. It should. Should, uh, even though it's light, it should have a little bit of tartness. Obviously, it's had a little bit of lactic fermentation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it should also have kind of a uh, creamy body, and that's from, from the, the grip. Um, you were spot on when you like, think of Hoe Garden, like, and I do kind of want to have a an orange peel like served with it. Yeah. Um, something citrus. A lightly sour Hoe Garden yeah. would be good, too. This is, this this is, is like good. what I would think of. you got to have a good beer garden beer, and this would be kind of that. Yeah. This is great, right? Yeah, it was very good. Very solid. Yeah, we'll, we'll move it from the five-gallon system, hopefully, to the 15-barrel system here soon. It's funny. On the nose, you can smell a little bit of the saltiness, but you don't taste it at all. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very creamy, very smooth. Yeah, and this is, this is the first beer I've ever uh, actually added salt to. Yeah. <laughs> so, I've, I've read about it, and, uh, you know, what does, try, what does, try to get uh, into it. It's, what does the salt do to the beer, other than the obvious just season the beer, but... Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, what would be an interesting experiment is to brew this beer without and with salt, right? Because that, so that's the only way test. to really tell. Um, but um, by tasting it and from other gozes that I've had, it's, um, it should do basically what, what it does to food too, right? It should basically accentuate and uh, kind of add to it. But over adding salt could probably go in the negative way too, right? So it's finding that balance and what I did is I basically just looked up some different recipes and, and read some things on it and kind of tried to find a middle ground with this with this first bat. I imagine it also uh, slows down the yeast because salt, I imagine. You know, I, I was wondering about it, yeah. and there's actually some brewers, and I, I added this uh, during the, 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 uh, the end of the boiling process. Um, so there, there's been a little bit of study done on if it can, and what most people found, it, it really doesn't affect it too much until you get to the really high levels of salt. I did notice a little bit of, uh, it didn't attenuate or ferment down quite as far as, as my beers normally do. So I'm wondering if I add the salt actually after fermentation, if that could change. And, I, and I've read some, some breweries do that. And so that might be something I experiment with later on. Well, it just as, as an amateur brewer. It seems contradictory to everything because I know acid slows down fermentation mm-hmm. and salt slows down fermentation, right. which means that this so tastes sweeter. Right. So, yeah, yeah that's interesting. Um, you want me to get into my history nonsense? I love for you to. 15th century, Hogarden goes back to the 15th century. Uh, but like you said, it was almost a lost style. Which is, which is about when a lot of like the Trappist beer breweries yeah. that were in France go back to, but they had a later, they got kicked out with plants, right? Well, so... The, the Hogarden isn't technically crap. Right, uh, right, right. I'm, 
monasteries were supposed to be self-sufficient. So they would make something, food, cheese, uh, beer to sell, to sell, remain self-sufficient. Hogarden was thought to be a miracle because oranges weren't fresh. They came from the Middle East. So they would leave them in baskets and bins and they would get moldy before they tossed them into beer. And coriander is a natural anti-inflammatory. So it would act as a pseudo penicillin. Um, and so the 15th and 16th century, the fermented orange peel, the same thing that Fleming found with leaf penicillin, would be tossed into the beer right at the end and it would have medicinal qualities. And so it was considered a miracle and it would cure things like virus infections and basic illnesses. Uh, so if you want to make your own antibiotics, I don't recommend it. You could. Uh, but antibiotics go back to the ancient Egypt. Um, in common had bad acne and he was buried with mud that had minocycline in it um, because it comes out of the soil. I, I love, did I, did just, I, we mention that he's a doctor? Oh, a I doctor just love medicine. knowing that, that, that Tutankhamun had something in common with us, which is just general acne. So, That's right. And you don't have the club foot, so you're doing better than he was. Oh, God bless. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, um, but yeah, the, the Hogarden is probably one of the easiest beers for you guys to find. So if you want to hear the base of what we're talking about, and you're not in the metro area, so you can't get this, right? Uh, Hogarden is kind of, it's not a terrible place to start. But it needs that orange. It needs to refresh that citrus flavor. Should we move on to our, our next beer? Do you want to bring one of yours or do you want to mine? Mine's, 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 yours. mine's yours. heavy. So I grabbed something else, another local brew, because um, yours aren't on the shelf yet. This is from Three Taverns. Which, is that Decatur? Okay. So um, for those of you who like getting drunk and learning to brew, you're going to brew a lot of heavy stuff, as Craig mentioned, mainly because heavy stuff hides a lot of sins. Um, and the gold standard for Belgians is the golden ale, uh, which generally in America is called the quad, uh, which is given the designation of a 12 or often a blue, if you're looking colored based on locality. I brought this not because I think it's necessarily a good or bad representation. I think beer is beer and you could have a terrible example of the style and still have a pretty good beer. But because this is something that Americans do with a lot of styles that I really enjoy. And this includes, well, people at the table who made a beer that I said was very much to style, which is that everything about this beer, which you would think would be subtle and Belgian, is turned up to 12 and a half. Uh, the gravity is high. It's too hoppy and it tastes too sweet. But I think it's still not a bad beer. This is Quasimodo, which I realized I didn't bring up. That's an evening right there. That is. <laughs> For, for how sweet it smells, I like the uh, the clean dry thing. Um, and you know, that, that's actually how I judge a lot of beers. You know, beers can be nice, sweet uh, up front. And, but if they if they finish sweet, that it's hard to take the next sip, then it's kind of, you know, it's it's not done as well as I, I thought it could be. This has a really nice finish to it that wants me, it makes me want to keep drinking. I agree. Um, and it has a lot of caramel notes which means it was probably barrel aged because a lot of that kind of caramel sweetness vanilla comes out of the wood when it's kind of uh, aged. But it has, you know, it was properly fermented. There's no weird Band-Aid. Or for Belgians, American Belgians, look for um, a banana flavor. Um, also in a lot of German wheats that are poorly made uh, because that means that... Well, at least you're doing some Hefeweizen. That's true. That is appropriate. Yeah. Um, but generally when the yeast is starved, uh, it can throw off off flavor. This means it was properly... You know, treat it. Yeah. Um, and with Belgian beers, you want to stretch that yeast to the limit because that makes the tannins and the complexity. This one's good. It's just, this is the American version. If you compare this with the Chimay, Chimay is a lot more subtle. Or St. Bernard's is a lot more subtle. That doesn't make this a bad beer. No, not at all. <laughs> um, which I guess is part of our beer story. No two are alike, but that doesn't make them bad. It's almost like... Um... In, in, in food, you have a lot of fusion and everything, and, and different cultures will take on and try other cultures' food yeah. and adapt it to their own. And this is kind of what we're, we've done yeah. for quad. Perfect. Cool. Well, I think uh, let's segue this into uh, just what, what I mean, every region in, in Europe has its own, its own styles, and Belgium really goes and, and has a multiple of styles, whereas Germany, you can, you can say they're kind of monochromatic on, on their styles, but Belgium seems to have all, all of the above. And I, I, I'm actually a beer judge. And, and what's interesting with that is when we get to some of the Belgian styles, how wide of a range some of them are. So if I'm talking about like a Belgian Saison, 
I mean, how how wide that can be from from light to, to black to um, to the three and a half percent to seven. And I, I think you're, you're getting into a lot of like how beer came to be in Belgium, where they do a lot of wild yeast and they kind of let what was your French term? You know, like the terroir. Terroir. Yeah, they're kind of letting that has developed the the beer styles, and sure. so you do have different regions <laughs> that have come up with really distinct styles, and some of them seasonal. Well, and I guess the Germans did have laws to kind of yeah, and when, right, when the Germans yeah. were coming up with their their beer laws, laws yeah. was like no, yeah. which was more for tax reasons. There's some guys yes. that want to collect some money. Um, but what's cool about all these all these different styles, and you know, we, we like we have a, a quad in front of us, or if we have saison or, or whatever whatever it is, each brewery. Uh, not only seems to have a different glass for the brewery, but actually it's a different glass for each beer they make. Every, every brand, their, every yeah. style. Yeah. So, so you, can, you can go to a Belgian beer bar, some of the great ones that, that we've been to, and uh, they actually won't serve you until they have a glass back uh, uh, so they can serve you in the proper, proper glassware. Which I, I really appreciate to to an extent, unless I'm waiting for a beer for thirty Wait, minutes. Like, it's a beer already. Uh, because <laughs> because I think that glassware can add so much to the experience because uh, so so often we just get focused on the liquid, but when you get the entire experience with the glassware so over the right temperature and everything like that, I mean it can just accentuate everything so so much more. And uh, we, we I think we saw that in uh, in wine culture when uh in the 70s there really people just drank uh table wine out of out of juice glasses and now there's nice stemware and every every wine has its own has its own uh, wine glass and we're getting more and more like that in the u.s but belgium kind of takes it to an extreme i think there's still a little bit of a stigma in the u.s when when someone's drinking beer out of a stemware glass or even a glass that looks like a wine glass when in reality that's Sometimes the proper glass did to use, or yeah. it's just really cool. There's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, that's amazing. If you pour beer in two separate glassware, if you have, you know, take your standard uh, pint glass that you get at, at a bar, uh, and then pour that same beer into its proper glassware, that may be a, a bowl shape that that brings in all the aromas to your nose, uh, or that something that holds foam better. How much more that it adds to the experience. So, some some of the glassware that I had. In Belgium, um, I mean, not only adds to the to the experience of uh, tasting, but aesthetically is, is gorgeous. Well, and I think for the people there, is, I just kind of note the different styles of glassware that they that you might typically find a beer in Belgium is there's a goblet, a tulip, a flute glass, wisen glass, and a snip. Um, yeah, and you'll notice too, depending on the beer glass, uh, sometimes at the bottom there'll be little etchings. Those are called nucleation sites that help release the air. But generally, it's a way to control the flavor and the scent. The closer, the, the more close it is at the top, it's designed to focus the smell at your nose. Um, and in America, it was such a rebellion, so to speak, that it was not uncommon for Belgian beers to print the type of glass on the back. So you'd have like a little picture of the tulip glass for like a Chimay because they were afraid that their beer was being ruined. Um, and I mean, again, Sam Adams was one of the first American breweries to really say, this is our we're, glass. We're doing our wine glass, yeah. Yeah, my, my father used to represent Trappist Breweries. Uh, he does some law and helps European setup companies here. And he was one of the first people to help the Trappist get the insignia of, this is a Trappist. People can't use the name Trappist without being Trappist. But he got a whole bunch of Chimay stuff in and he said, when the Belgian beers would come to the States, they would ship the glasses and then bars wouldn't use them. So you could just literally go and ask, can I get a, you know, Stella thing? And they would just give you, give them away because they didn't use them because they wanted the aesthetic of the bar to remain the same, which is just nonsense. Uh, that's, They're doing the work for you. That's what I really appreciate about uh, like Porter Bar yeah. uh, here in Little Five is they, they are beer specific glasses like for their, for their stuff where you go to some, some, some bars and it's like, yeah, this, this, uh, this sponsor sponsoring all of our glasses. So this is what you're getting, which is. It's fine, I guess, but I'd rather, you know, if you really want to enjoy some good beer, well, and it's, it's a good glass. And we were talking about head a second ago. They also have that line where this is where the beer should be. This is where the head should go. And yes, yeah, because people felt like they were being ripped off. 
But then, you know, the beer is in flattened garbage. When I go to a sports bar and the glass has been chilled and the beer is oh, all the way to the top, there's a place I'm not going to mention the name. There's a few out. like that. <laughs> but there was ice chunks floating. There was no head and it was oh, to the top. Man. And yeah. it was an imperial stout. I'm like, guys, you've got yeah. everything wrong. I'm talking about ice chunk floating. And, I, and I'll go to so the worst beer glass I've ever had a beer out of. Um, and this is this is kind of a culture of this city. So my, my old brewery in, uh, in Fort Worth, Texas, Rar and Sons, uh, we made this gorgeous beer every year. It's called uh, 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 Bourbon Barrel Age Winter Warmer. And uh, so ages and, you know, brought down barrels from Kentucky, aged the beer for three to four months. And uh, then it, it goes out and it's kind of it's kind of one of those whale beers, um, you know. And, and so there's one bar that had it. And there's this culture in Fort Worth that really doesn't exist in anywhere, any other town that I know of. And I think they think they're themselves as fancy for doing this. So their proper glassware is actually worse than a pint glass. It's called a schooner. And a schooner is what you would serve a um, like an ice cream sundae at. It's a big ice cream sundae glass that, that has a it has a stem and it's this big, heavy, heavy glass, almost like a the, the thickness of glass is like what you'd get at a, 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 the mosses and the beer gardens. Like a big Kenya. mug. Yeah, like I mean, thick. super heavy. And uh, they froze it. They froze this glass. They poured my beer into it that it took, you know, four or five months to make. And iceberg, literal iceberg <laughs> floating on top of this beer that I was so proud of. And it's so cold that you can't taste what the beer actually tastes like. And there's ice you know, they turned my beer into icebergs. And so, I mean, uh, it, 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 but they think of themselves as, uh, they think that this is like, nobody else does this in the world. We got it right, guys. And so, that's pint, pint glass is bad, but there can be worse. Uh, that, it just sounds like the kind of thing you drink punch punch out of in college. Just like. <laughs> I guess what we're saying to all the, the bars out there, Please. Sorry, Fort Worth. I want to be Fort Worth, but please get rid of the schooner. Also, nothing should be served ice cold that we've been talking about tonight. No, not no. at all. <laughs> if you want those flavors first. released and the heat's going to help that a little bit. You don't want it hot. I can get 110 degrees no. in Fort Worth. And, you know, if you're drinking a Pilsner, yes. just don't freeze the everything. You know, allow some flavor to come through. And lagers can be cold, man. But if you're drinking a Belgian and there's, and, and you're setting sail on icebergs, you just, that's, everything is wrong with that scent. Put it aside, order another beer and drink it in half an hour. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we've uh, come close to the end, but we got, we're going to keep you here for another couple minutes. Uh, now's where it gets hard. Quick fire questions. Now's where it gets tough for the guests. We have, we, we haven't, uh, this is our initial episodes. We haven't come up with two fancy terms. So we'll just we'll go with the generic lightning round. Um, first question. So in champagne, there's a tradition to savor a champagne bottle. Have you ever savored a Belgian beer bottle? You mean like kept it? Savor. Like, like you take oh, the sword and you savor the... I did. I, I want to say really? that. I, I maybe have. I've seen you do this. I have. Okay, so... Um, I had a weird purple labeled goza. Um, uh, not, not you had a goza, like a goose, a goose, yeah. like you have there, like a slightly soured. And I tried it and it, it ended poorly because I took the top half of the neck off. Oh, yeah. yeah no, I, the, you got to keep the sore on the bottle and lightly just raise the <laughs> I, I did it with three bottles of champagne perfectly. I do this and it cuts <laughs> right in half. And I live next to a little gully. Um, and so that glass is just gone. I couldn't even <laughs> to save my life. Yeah, no, that wasn't great. So it's, you can do it, but just do it uh, not after three bottles. Of <laughs> okay, you learn the more. If you're drinking three bottles of champagne and then still have the uh, ability to savor a bottle of beer, and then you crack out the good stuff. Yeah, no, that was all bad decisions across the board. Um, okay, next question. Most interesting beer you've ever had. It was bad, but I'm going to call out the brewery. Um, <laughs> Voodoo Donuts is a... Yes, uh, in Port, yeah, Portland, Oregon. Portland, yeah. Oregon. Yeah, um, Rogue yeah. made Voodoo Donuts beer, yeah. and it was a uh, bacon caramel apple donut. And I'm sorry. First of all, I'm not a huge fan of smoked porters to begin with, 
But this is one I bought, shared with eight people, and none of us could finish I, it. I, I remember was, that. I know the there, bottle, the pink bottle, but I have not had it. It's one of those beers that you have a sip and you're like, fine. You can't have more than that. No, like no. that that's about it. Because it's such a is super sweet syrup. Yeah, yeah. And smoke to balance it out. Yeah. So you don't realize how much sugar's actually in it. Like it, 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 I mean, it was properly fermented, but like as someone who's made a lot of bad home brews, it just reminded me of every mistake you could make. L- let me, uh, let me ask you a question, Craig. Um, brewing with meat. You know, it could, I think mostly gimmicky. I've seen it done a couple of times. Actually, my old brewery in Denver, Wincoop Brewing Company, they made a right, right after I'd left brewing there. They made a beer with uh, uh, bull test uh, called the Rocky Avocados Mountain- <laughs> <laughs> called the Rocky Mountain Oyster Stout. And yeah, I, from that what I know uh, in talking to the brewers that were there, I think it was I think it was basically just big gimmicky stuff. But but you can add you can add meat flavor like smoke by you know adding smoke malt and other things. And you can just roast the grain if you really want that smokiness, but literally bake it just. It ruined the head. It ruins everything. It leaves like a grease slick. With the bacon beer, there's one other that I've had. It was made by uh, Brooklyn Brewing Company. This was at a rare beer festival uh, that we hosted at Wincoop one year during JBF. And it was uh, uh, called Schwein So, uh, And I think it was actually made with like, yeah, hog and bacon. We mentioned these breweries because Brooklyn is not going to suffer from me mentioning this. No, in Rogue How many times have they won the uh, the Brown Ale Award at GABF? I mean, they're, they're, they're incredible. Uh, they're, they're, they're doing, doing all right. Yeah. There's a reason they don't make that beer anymore. <laughs> yeah, I think that was a one-off for them. <laughs> I don't know. They, they distributed that pretty widely, didn't they? Yeah, no, I did they when it came out. I, I, just I, I remember seeing it on festival. the shelves for a while here. Really? They were feeling ambitious, and it was a mistake. Uh-huh. Um, uh, okay, so next question. When you're not drinking beer, what are you drinking, alcoholic or otherwise? Um, because I'm losing weight, I'm drinking Spindrift carbonated water, but, um, I'm a bourbon guy, um, which I guess is along the same lines as whiskey or as, as beer in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, I'm not a fancy bourbon guy. I'm a casual, you know, um, four roses on the rocks, nothing fancy. Um, maybe an old fashioned if I'm feeling like standing, um, especially maple old fashioned, which is the best, but you know, I'm, I'm not like a $500 bottle of whiskey guy. I'm just like a back porch rocking chair kind of whiskey guy. It's a good way to put it. Yeah. It's, I mean, I, I have some fancy stuff, but that's, you know, with my bourbon, you know, I'm not terribly picky, but I do like to try, you know, different style with. Oh, this is, mo- this is mo- mojito and the julep weather, man. It's just yeah. beautiful back. Oh, I've been getting into a lot of mezcal and Ooh. tequila lately. Oh yeah. That's some good stuff. Mezcal old fashioned. I, I remember the night I was introduced to mezcal and it ended poorly. It was good. Oh, <laughs> I, not leading up to it was, it was a crazy night for me. I was in Mexico City. This is another episode. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it ended great for me. Oh, good. Yeah. We won't go there. Um, okay. So this is a, not only a beer podcast, but this is a, you know loosely travel podcast, yeah. especially with Round Trip Brewing Company and, and what we represent. So um, next place you want to go and uh, why do you want to travel there? Well, at the moment, just leaving my house for <laughs> disease reasons. Yeah, right. Um, I mean, so Asheville is perfect. But as far as drinking, like truly drinking goes, I've done a lot of the big European sites. Like I, I've been to an Oktoberfest. I've been to Pelzen. Um, I want to spend time in Ireland. I, I've never done like true Irish, like not drinking, but just really I've never been to Ireland. And that seems like a culture design just for enjoying food, enjoying life in a really simple way. Um, so probably there. I think pop, pop culture would be super cool too. Pop culture is incredible. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'll give you tips offline. Oh, please. Uh, <laughs> um, really? Also, Ireland's another episode, but yeah, uh, yeah, it, it's an, it's absolutely incredible. And you know, one of the one of the things that I picked up the first time I was there, um, this was about ten years, twelve years ago. Yeah. So the, oh, we were so drunk. <laughs> this guy was sitting across from me, and he was trying to explain. Um, how people go to the bar in the afternoon to keep the lines fresh so people in the evening can have fresh Guinness. <laughs> and it's, it was like the culture was trying to keep all the beer fresh. So, of course, we have to drink in the afternoon. So the people who are drinking in the evening and at late at night 
are going to continue to have fresh Guinness because the lines are kept fresh and they, it keeps flowing. Well, it is funny because like for all the talk of us having a million billion Belgian beers, I'm honestly ignorant of Irish beers other than Guinness and, you know, basics. But I know it's a culture in its own that I need to go. I mean, because again, like I've been to the Czech Republic and had real pills and those are it's incredible, else. right? Yeah. But, but it's not exactly complex. It's the subtlety of an incredible style. That's why I want to go to Ireland. It seems to me to be the same kind of thing. They have a distinct style that I want to have hands on. You know, I'm not an expert, but they also have uh, several other styles. <laughs> yeah, they do have whiskey. Well, right. <laughs> yeah. Pleading ignorance. That's why I want to yeah. go. Yeah. Uh, I've been to one or two Irish, uh, three Irish men. Cool. Again, off top. Uh, no. Yeah, Another day. It, it's incredible. All right, last question, and then you're free to go. Right. I know this has been painful. Um, favorite way to travel? So planes, trains, automobiles. What's your favorite way to get around? Segway scooters, which are about yeah, to be out of style. When you're, when yeah. you're uh, going to uh, wherever you're going. Um, when I get to, when I, obviously you can't take a train to Europe. Uh, but when you actually get to Europe, it's all the trains. Because you can walk on, walk off. Um, and generally they're so accurate and simple that like you could go to Bruges for a, a, a middle of the afternoon meal and make it back to Brussels. No it's problem. A, it's like an hour, hour and a half, uh, train ride. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the great thing is you can do, you can do things on the train when you're driving, you're basically, you drive and you can't do anything, but when you're on the train, you can basically still be working or whatever. And the predictable so you're not like, well, I'm going to accidentally end up two hours late home. No, you can like even have a, they let you drink on the trains. You could buy the, you know, basic beer in the train station from a vending machine. So you could have that nice meal, couple drinks and save that nice one for the train home. And no one cares. It's very casual. I love trains in Europe. Trains are absolutely the way to go. Yeah. And, and for the listeners out there, just know that there's a distinction between trains and the metro. Right, right. Uh, there's Inside regional trains, trains, there's local trains, yeah. there's uh, long distance trains, there's a lot of different types of trains. But, you know, if you're going to somewhere, if you're going to ask someone for directions and how to get to another part of town and they direct you to the metro and you go to the train station, just know that there's a difference. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Um, and don't be afraid to ask. They'll help you, please. They, they don't want to have to clean up if they're a drunk tourist who ends up in the wrong country. So <laughs> ask now or it'll be easier. <laughs> We'd like to thank Nick Hoffman for joining us today. If you'd like to hear more from Nick, he has his own podcast called Myopia, Defend Your Childhood. For a link to his podcast and more information on the beer we drink, visit our podcast page at roundtripbrewing.com. Beerfly Podcast is a production from Roundtrip Brewing Company. Artwork by Scott Miller. We want to offer some advice for those cautious about COVID-19. Beer is medicine. Alcohol is medicine. Don't lick anyone. It leads to death. We'll see you next time on the Beerfly Podcast.